0: Good evening. This is your host, Mr. Dark, bringing you a series of some of the most terrifying, strange, and true short horror stories of crimes, murders, abductions, and experiences. You're listening to the Dark Side Diaries podcast. Captain Silas Soule In Denver, Colorado, April 1865, a respected charismatic Union cavalry captain named Silas Soule was murdered in the streets. It would be just over a week after Abraham Lincoln's assassination. At 26 years old, Soule was still a young man, but his murder did not come as a surprise. Soule himself predicted it happening numerous times, including the day before his death. In 1838, Sol was born in Bath, Maine, into a family of abolitionists and raised in a colony with the radical ideals of the time, such as gender and racial equality. In 1854, his family became part of the newly formed New England Immigrant Aid Company, an organization whose goal was to help settle the Kansas Territory and bring it into the Union as a free state. Shortly after the families moved to Coal Creek, which is near present-day Vinland, Kansas, Sol's father made the household a stop of the Underground Railroad. By the age of 16, Seoul was escorting and leading escaped slaves between Underground Railroad stops and to freedom. It was extremely dangerous work for both the escort and slaves. They were always at risk of imprisonment or death. Prior to the Civil War, the territory was so violent that it was commonly referred to as Bleeding Kansas. This would lead Sol to join the Jayhawkers, the name given to Kansas abolitionist militia. At 19, Sol was already known as a notorious guerrilla fighter with a bounty on his head. Sol was involved in several high-profile prison breaks, including the escape of Underground Railroad conductor John Doy and the attempted prison break of John Brown in Harpers Ferry, Virginia. John Brown would refuse the help twice, and these events would leave Sol unable to return to Kansas. In May 1860, Sol would make his way to Colorado with his brother and cousin mining for gold and working in a blacksmith's shop. This wouldn't last long as the Civil War broke out in 1861, and it would find Sol fighting with the Colorado 1st Regiment as a First Lieutenant, due to his many years of experience with the Jayhawkers. In March 1862, the Colorado 1st Regiment would successfully drive back a Confederate attempt to cross into Colorado and New Mexico Territory. The Battle of Glorietta Pass would see the Colorado 1st Regiment be promoted to an official United States Cavalry Unit, and Seoul would be promoted to captain in recognition of his tactical skill and calm under fire. Captain Sol, Colonel John Shivington, Major Edward Wincoop, and Territorial Governor John Evans would lead tentative peace talks between the United States and the two tribes, the Cheyenne and Arapaho, at the Camp Weald Council. Wincoop and Seoul viewed the council as a victory. Unbeknownst to them though, Evans and Shivington were planning to eliminate the Indian problem once and for all. On November 28, 1864, Colonel Shivington would advise his troops that the Cheyenne and Arapaho were planning a surprise attack on United States forces. He explained that a preemptive strike was the only way to prevent disaster. Sol knew Shivington was lying as the settlement was flying a Union flag as a sign of peace. What would ensue was a raid on the peaceful encampment at Sand Creek, where wives, children, and elderly of the two tribes were living while warriors attended the Camp Weld Council. This would be known as Sand Creek Massacre, one of the most notorious acts of mass murder in U.S. history. Soul would tell his men that any man who would take part in the murders knowing the circumstances as we did was a low, livid, cowardly son of a bitch. Sol threatened to personally shoot any of his men who followed the order and instead had his company attempt to block the attack. Other captains took a leave from Sol and refused to allow their men to fight. Shivington did not take this criticism well and threatened to have Sol hanged. Over 150 women, children, and elderly were murdered at Sand Creek. Shivington was determined to brand the massacre as an important victory for the United States, but Sowell refused to let that happen. Seoul wrote letters to influential congressmen in Washington, describing the truth of what happened that day. He was able to convince others to write letters as well, documenting the true horror of the experience. The Sand Creek massacre sparked outrage and shock around the country as the news and information spread. Seoul had some success that an inquiry was launched into the massacre at Sand Creek. Shivington, angry with this, would attempt to cast Seoul as a coward and a traitor to white Americans. But nothing would ever come to the investigation and Shivington's contract with the military expired, making him ineligible for court-martial. But Shivington's political aspirations were destroyed by Seoul’s testimony. Shivington would be branded with the nickname the Butcher of Sand Creek and stated he wanted revenge on Sol. After the massacre, Sol decided he didn't want to re-enlist with the Colorado Cavalry when his contract expired, and he took a position as the head of military police in Denver. On April 1, 1865, Sol would marry Herse Coberly. Three weeks after the wedding, Sol heard a gunshot a few blocks away from his home and went to investigate it. He would find Charles Squire waiting for him in the dark alley. Sol was killed instantly by a bullet to the head. Squire was captured and then served under Shivington in the army. Unfortunately, he escaped before trial. It was believed that Shivington had hired him to murder Soul, but it was never proven. Squire would flee to Central America trying to avoid the law. In 1869, his legs would be crushed in a railroad accident and he later died from gangrene. Solt would say this about the Sand Creek Massacre. I refused to fire and swore that none but a coward would, for by this time hundreds of women and children were coming towards us and getting on their knees for mercy. I tell you Ned, it was hard to see little children on their knees have their brains beat out by men professing to be civilized. I saw two Indians hold one of another's hand, chased until they were exhausted, when they kneeled down and collapsed each other around the neck and were both shot together. They were all scalped, and as high as a half a dozen taken from one head. They were all horribly mutilated. One woman was cut open and a child taken out of her and scalped. Squaw's snatches were cut out for trophies. You would think it impossible for white men to butcher and mutilate human beings as they did here. Carl Panzram Born in 1891, Carl Panzram's childhood is a thing of horror which would lead to one of the most sadistic and long crime sprees in history. Living in poverty with his immigrant parents in Minnesota, he experienced severe abuse and neglect. When he was 8 years old, Panzram had his first ever arrest for being drunk in public. In 1903 at age 11, he would break into a neighbor's home stealing some cake, apples, and a revolver. The break-in incident would see him sent to Minnesota State Training School. He would say his rage and hate for everything human was intensified because of his time here. While there, the staff members raped him and beat him. He was often tortured and made to dance naked for the staff members. Attendees dubbed this place the paint shop because children from school would leave painted with bruises bloodied and broken down. Panzeram wrote of the lessons from school as, I was reformed all right. I had been taught by Christians how to be a hypocrite, and I had learned more about stealing, lying, hating, burning, and killing. I had learned that a boy's penis could be used for something besides to urinate with, and that a rectum could be used for other purposes. By the age of 14, he was an alcoholic and was repeatedly in trouble with the authorities, often for burglary and theft. He would run away a couple of weeks after his parole, and after attempting to kill a Lutheran cleric with a revolver, only to become a hobo, he would train-hop, and on one train, Panzram was gang-raped by a group of hobos who attacked him while riding. This is where his hate would take deep roots. In Panzram's words, I cried, I begged, and pleaded for mercy, pity, and sympathy, but nothing I could say or do could sway them from their purpose. I left that box a sadder, sicker, but wiser boy, At 15 and drunk, Pansram would enlist and join the army. He did not last long in the army before being convicted of larceny and being imprisoned at Fort Leavenworth's U.S. disciplinary barracks. He served a jail term from 1908 to 1910, as approved by William Howard Taft, the then Secretary of War. Pansram would later claim that any goodness left in him was smashed out during this imprisonment. After his release and dishonorable discharge, Panzeram returned to his horrific ways. Over the next 10 years, Panzeram traveled the United States ruthlessly attacking, robbing, and most often raping male targets. He stole absolutely anything he could get away with, from bottles of booze to yachts, and was caught and imprisoned multiple times. He served time under his own name and various aliases. In his words, Panzeram was rage personified, and he used to rape before robbing. Being six foot tall and having a large stature gave him an advantage over his victims. Having been exposed to hard labor in most of the prisons he was sentenced in, he had built his physical strength, which became a weapon against the men he raped. In 1920, Panzeram broke into the Connecticut home of U.S. President William Howard Taft, who he held responsible for his Lavenworth imprisonment. He stole the president's bonds, jewelry, and personal Colt 45 caliber pistol. A weapon Panzeram would put to horrific use. Panzeram mugged and sexually violated men at every opportunity. Using Tav's handgun, he said he sodomized a railroad cop and then forced a group of hobos to gang rape the cop. Panzeram wrote, Whenever I met a target that wasn't too rusty looking, I would make him raise his hands and drop his pants. I wasn't very particular either. I rode them old and young, tall and short, white and black. It made no difference to me at all, except that they were human beings. With the money stolen from Taft, Panzeram was able to buy a yacht. He would lure sailors away from New York City bars, get them drunk, rape them, shoot them with Taft's pistol. He dumped their bodies in Long Island Sound and claimed to have killed 10 in all. The murders ended only after he sank his boat near Atlantic City. In 1921, Panzeram hopped a ship to Africa, where he said he raped, killed, and bashed the skull of a young boy. He also claimed to have chartered a boat with six crewmen, who he shot and fed in pieces to crocodiles. In 1922, upon returning to the United States, Panzeram said he raped and slaughtered a succession of four little boys along the East Coast and randomly murdered residents of homes he burglarized. In 1923, Panzeram would be arrested for sexually assaulting a male who got away from him. This would see him sentenced to a five-year prison sentence. Upon his release in 1928 and bored with the system, he was arrested for the last time. He was in a burglary job in Washington, DC when the police apprehended him. Seeing that he would be released after serving his term, he willingly confessed having killed two boys. After the confession, he received a 25 years to life imprisonment to be served at the Lavenworth Federal Penitentiary. Once in prison, he killed the laundry supervisor in cold blood by beating him with an iron box. This was when he was sentenced to death. Human rights activists tried to plead his case, and in his response to them, he said, The only thanks you and your kind will ever give for me for your efforts on my behalf is that I wish you all had one neck and that I had my hands on it. Panzeram, while awaiting his execution, wrote a detailed summary of his crimes and nihilistic philosophy. In this, he made it quite clear that he did not repent in the least of all the robberies, murders, rapes, and arsons he had been involved in. It began with a straightforward statement. In my lifetime, I have murdered 21 human beings. I have committed thousands of burglaries, robberies, largesons, arsons, and and last but not least, I have committed sodomy on more than 1,000 male human beings. For all these things, I am not the least bit sorry. While Panzeram stood in the gallows at Lavenwood Federal Penitentiary's execution chamber, He growled at the hangman with his last words. Hurry up, you Hoosier bastard. I could kill ten men while you're fooling around. This concludes our episode of the Dark Side Diaries. Please remember to follow, like, share, and subscribe for future episodes.